four verses in, uh, that begin chapter 8, <clears throat> but we want to pick up a little bit of context, especially after uh, kind of being away from it for a week with Resurrection Sunday. So we'll pick things up in chapter 7, verse 15. Paul writes and says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree that the law, uh, with the law that it is good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. The evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin." There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemns sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we, it is impossible for me to put into words the gratitude that I feel and I know we all do for this section of your Bible, this section of Romans called Romans chapter 8, and Lord, for the truths that are found in just these first four verses. And I pray, Lord, that as I just think about the, the uh, reinforcement in our hearts of things that many of us already know, but for others that stand before you at this moment, that these four verses are just going to rock their world. It is going to rock their relationship with you and utterly transform it. And we pray, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to be great upon your word and great in our lives to receive your word this morning in that place that we uh, commune with you and we have our relationship with you. Bless us through your word, by your spirit, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It's important to remember that when Paul wrote uh, this letter to the church at Rome that it did not, of course, contain chapter and verse. Chapters and verses would be added to the Bible uh, many, many centuries after this uh, epistle was written. And so I mentioned that because uh, when Paul is writing, so often he's building point after point after point 
and, and he's got a very uh, tight thought progression that's going on. But so often when we hit a new chapter break, there, we sense that somehow he's done with just what he's been talking about, and now he's starting something altogether new. And we really have to resist the idea that with the start of chapter 8, Paul is uh, heading into a new subject uh, because he isn't. He's simply continuing his instruction concerning the great subject in the book of Romans that constitutes chapters 6 through 8, and that is the great subject of sanctification. And uh, that's the overarching uh, theme of the, of the three chapters. Sanctification is a, a term that merely uh, simply means to be holy. It means to be Christ-like. And uh, the work of uh, we, God desires that we become sanctified, that we be sanctified as Christians, and so uh, and to be holy. One of the problems with a term like holy is uh, how in the world do you define it? And uh, one of the dangers of religious men is that they're going to define it for us and almost always lead us astray in the definition of, of holiness or sanctification. Uh, the definition of holiness in human history is Jesus Christ. It's the holiest life that has ever been lived. And every definition of holiness and sanctification needs to be run through his life. And if we don't see it in his life, then we recognize that that is a false definition of sanctification or holiness that's being foisted upon us. It will do us no good. Every true definition of holiness will look like Him. And so sanctification is to grow in holiness, Christ-likeness, and, and to have our lives set apart unto God for His purposes for, for my life. I want to take just a moment to remember what we've already learned in this respect from Romans chapter 6 as we build our way a little bit into, into chapter 8 here. And in Romans chapter 6, Paul declared to us as Christians that God's plan of salvation not only provides us with the forgiveness of our sins past, it not only promises us one day to be delivered from the very presence of sin, that one day we will be in the future in the very glory of heaven, but our salvation also provides us with the power to live a holy life and a godly life now, to live a life as a Christian free from sin and uh, to live what I refer to as a, a victorious Christian life. And in chapter 6, uh, Paul focused on the, the fact that the victorious Christian life centers upon four great words that he brought out in that chapter, the word know, the word reckon, the word present, and the word uh, slave. But what happens so often in a Christian's life is that upon hearing about this sanctification that is ours, the victorious Christian life, uh, that we are freed from the power of sin, and now uh, God calls upon us to live a holy life, is that upon hearing all of this, our very first reaction so often is to try and accomplish sanctification in our lives, number one, by way of law. Uh, by either coming under the law of Moses or the law of some denomination or the law of some religious leader or the law that wants to surface within our own heart. 
And so we're going to now become holy uh, on the basis of keeping some set of rules. Whether the law of Moses, which is what Paul is talking about here, or some law or legalism of our own making. Or the second temptation we have in terms of becoming holy is, is that now we're going to do it in our own strength, that we're going to accomplish it uh, by, uh, by way of, of human effort and, and natural determination, or we attempt to do it on some combination of our own strength and law. And that's why it isn't a coincidence in chapter 7, as we've seen, that the word law was used 23 times as we studied it. And then the words I, me, my, and myself were used fully 50 times within the chapter. And a reference to the only one reference to the Holy Spirit and all of Romans uh, chapter 7. And in this chapter, chapter 7, you have the Christian who falls prey uh, in, to Romans 7 Christianity. That is, who upon becoming a Christian and learning that salvation isn't merely being saved from the penalty of sin and one day being saved from the very presence of heaven, uh, uh, of sin by entering into heaven, but also now to be saved from the very power of sin. And now this Christian determines that they're going to enter into the victorious Christian life in their own strength, in their own human effort. And so they roll up their sleeves and they get to work and determined now to accomplish their holiness in their own strength through the keeping of law of Moses or some law of our own making, and they think it's going to be a cinch. Uh, and I've lived in Romans 7, so I'm very familiar with it. God has saved me. Uh, God has been good to me. I love God. I love God. There's no question that the Christian in Romans chapter 7 loves God and wants to live for God. I love God, he says to himself. And so, becoming holy should be uh, something that is, is simple enough. But there's one glaring problem with, with that plan, and that is if we couldn't keep the law of Moses to save ourselves, if we couldn't keep the law of Moses to accomplish the greatest thing and the most necessary thing to happen in our lives, that is our salvation, how in the world uh, do we think now that we can keep the law of Moses in order to sanctify ourselves? It's impossible in terms of salvation. It's impossible in terms of sanctification. And yet we try. Everybody tries. Whether they try for five minutes and figure out this is not going to work or they invest 20 years in human effort in the Christian life and ending up frustrated, uh, we try. And of course, it always ends up, as we saw in Romans chapter 7, in complete failure and uh, in complete uh, frustration because the Christian life is not one in which God saves us and then supplies us with a Bible, supplies us with a big, thick book full of commandments which we are then to try and obey and our own strength in order to accomplish our own holiness. The Christian life can only be lived in the power of the Holy Spirit, which Paul now develops in chapter 8. The single most important element to holy living and a sanctified life is the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 8 now, as opposed to the Holy Spirit being mentioned but once in the misery of chapter, of the Christianity described in chapter 7, here in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit, 
the word Spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, is used 19 times as Paul is going to drive home the point that the holy, victorious Christian life can only be achieved by the work of the Holy Spirit within our lives. Now, let me give you a brief uh, overview of these four verses that we're looking at today uh, for the theologians among us, and then we'll head into two applications. When uh, Paul declares in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Paul is not talking here supremely about the fact that as Christians we will never be condemned for our past sins uh, by virtue of the fact that Jesus has borne our sins upon the cross. Uh, We can never face double jeopardy related to our sins. Our sins can never be punished twice. Jesus bore on the cross the full penalty uh, uh, and judgment that our sin deserved. We will never, ever face condemnation for any sin that Jesus bore upon the cross uh, for us. All of that is absolutely true, but that, that absence of condemnation is not the condemnation that Paul is talking about in verse 1. Here Paul is declaring that the way to escape uh, the misery and condemnation of chapter 7 It begins with ceasing to try to live the Christian life in our own strength and instead doing it in the power uh, that the Holy Spirit gives. Now, notice in verse 2 that Paul speaks uh, to us of a new law. Uh, He's been talking about the law of Moses uh, uh, quite a bit as we've been making our way through uh, the book of Romans. But now he speaks to us of a new law, which he describes as the law of the Spirit, and that this law of the Spirit, whatever it is, it brings uh, a life and a power into our lives that the law of Moses could not. He further describes the law of Moses as the law of sin and death, because that's what the law of Moses does in a human life. It can only expose me as a sinner and then declare me to be guilty before God and worthy of judgment, worthy of death, which, as we've seen in previous studies, is the supreme purpose of the law of Moses. It was never given to mankind as a means by which we would either become saved by keeping it or made holy by keeping it. That is to completely understand the law of Moses from one end of the Bible uh, to the other. The law of Moses is a tutor. It is a teacher who is, it's his sole purpose or his sole purpose, uh, her sole purpose as a tutor is to make us aware of our guilt before God and then to point us to Jesus for our salvation. Now in chapter, in verse 3, Paul again speaks of the weakness of the law of Moses. He's been doing it through these chapters. He says, it supplies a wonderful standard and definition for holiness. You can hardly find a better one uh, in in the whole world, certainly independent of uh, nothing better, independent of the New Testament, where Jesus takes a definition of holiness into a a whole different realm uh, in the Sermon on the Mount and and beyond. But the law of Moses, it, it supplies man with this wonderful standard for holiness. 
But it, what it, its great failure is that it does not supply me with an accompanying desire or a will to keep it. And then it does not supply me with the power to be able to keep the law of Moses or to obey it. In the latter part of verse 3 and then through verse 4, Paul tells us that in Jesus, God has provided us with not only the forgiveness of sin past, and, uh, but also with the ability to live a holy life now as well, and that the holy life, uh, that holy life is achieved in us. And that word in is very important to notice in verse, uh, verse 4 there, uh, uh, that it is, uh, the, it is supplied to us, and, uh, and, and the Lord, is, that He's supplying this in within, within our, our lives. It's achieved uh, in us by the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And I want to focus, narrow our focus now this morning uh, to two phrases within the passage. In verse 1, those five words, the law of the Spirit, and then in verse 4, that single word in. And I think that law of the Spirit is worth underlining in any Bible. And then notice that word in in verse 4, that the righteousness, uh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, talking by the Holy Spirit. Not, Paul is not saying that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled by us. That is Romans chapter 7, and he is taking us out of Romans chapter 7. And you come out of Romans chapter 7 and into Romans chapter 8, into the fullness of what Christianity is intended to be, when that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, and here is the key, but according to the Spirit. Holiness is accomplished not by work or determination or strength, but by a work of the Holy Spirit within our lives. Now, I don't think anybody will understand anything about the Holy Spirit, not even begin to grasp uh, the subject of the third person of the Godhead, God uh, Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit, and certainly not understand His role in our sanctification without understanding that the Holy Spirit is, number one, a person, and number two, who lives the life of Christ in me and through me as a Christian. And so I want to spend a moment or two here this morning reminding us of the personality of the Holy Spirit. I think that so often in a Christian's life, uh, even, even in Christians that are fairly well taught, when we think about the Holy Spirit, we think of the Holy Spirit one-dimensionally, that He is solely a source of power in our Christian life, and He is far more than that within our lives. He is a person, and He brings the fullness of His personality into our lives when we become Christians. Whenever the Holy Spirit is referred to in the Bible, He is always referred to either by name or by title or by a personal pronoun like he or him. The Holy Spirit is never, search the Bible for yourself, the Holy Spirit is never referred to as an it. He is not an it. He is not an impersonal power uh, force. That is not what He is. 
He is a person, and every mention of the Holy Spirit within the Bible is intended to drive home the point in, in every child of God that the Holy Spirit is a person. One name that Jesus gave, for instance, concerning the Holy Spirit is that He is the helper. He also referred to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. Uh, we could spend the whole morning talking about names that are given to the Holy Spirit, proper names that are given to Him in, in, in the Scriptures and titles. He's always referred to as he or him in terms of personal pronouns. He is never, I repeat, he is never referred to as an it because he's not an it. He is not an impersonal force. He is a person. He is the third person of the Godhead. He is God the Holy Spirit. And all the way through the Bible, we're told things about him that can only be true of a person. And uh, we're given marks or characteristics of his personality. I think another thing related to the Holy Spirit that we have to be careful of is when we think of personhood or someone being a person, very often our thinking is one-dimensional, and it is physical in nature. So we consider a person to be a person by virtue of the fact that they have a torso, they have arms, they have legs, they have hands, they have feet, they have eyes, they have ears, they have a head. And so we think of someone being a person almost exclusively in terms of, of the physical. And, and as a result of it, they are a person. But there are other marks of uh, personality that are not physical. And, but are just as important and in some respects uh, more important. Some of the marks of personality in the Holy Spirit are, are these. Number one, He has knowledge. He has intelligence. He is able also to impart knowledge to others. An impersonal force or a mere power source does not do that. A person does that. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, Paul says, but God has revealed them to us through His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of Christ. The Holy Spirit has a will, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, but the one and same Spirit works all things, distributing spiritual gifts to each one as He wills. The Holy Spirit possesses power, and He imparts power, but He does not impart power willy-nilly. He imparts power in accordance with His will in our life and for our life. An impersonal force does not have a will. It's a mark of personality. We're told elsewhere that the Holy Spirit has a mind. Uh, mind is attributed to the Holy Spirit. You see it mentioned in, in chapter 8, verse 27. And, he, and now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. An impersonal force does not have a mind. Again, it's a mark of personality. Uh, later on, we'll get into chapter 15 of Romans where love is attributed to the Holy Spirit. Paul writes there, now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ, that through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. The Holy Spirit loves. The Holy Spirit has emotions. Again, an impersonal power uh, doesn't have these uh, things. 
He searches and he reveals, uh, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. Yes, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. He prays, Romans chapter 8, verse uh, 26, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. An impersonal force doesn't pray, but a person prays. He communicates. Revelation, when Jesus spoke continually uh, the seven letters to the seven churches, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit uh, says to the churches. He teaches. Uh, Jesus declared that he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. He leads. He guides. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 14, as we'll get to it one day. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. The Holy Spirit can be lied to, as Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 lied to the Holy Spirit. You can't lie to an impersonal force. It doesn't mean anything to a personal force. The Holy Spirit can be grieved in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Impersonal forces are not grieved. People are, are grieved. And all of these things that are described for us here concerning the Holy Spirit, and it's a short list of what could be a much longer list, all of these things are unique to a person. They are not present in an impersonal force or an essence or in a power. And again, I want to contend on this issue. is an important one for every one of us as Christians that wants to experience the victorious Christian life. When we think of the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit and His work within our lives, we must never stop and think one-dimensionally that when He comes into our lives, all He does is bring supernatural dynamic power. He does that. But when He comes into my life and your life as a Christian, He not only brings power, glory for that, but He brings every single thing on that list that I've just described to you as characteristics of his personality. He brings so much into our lives that the average Christian has no consciousness of and so doesn't understand how he leads and how he operates within our lives. It is so important to recognize that he is a person. Now, when he comes into our lives, coming to the law of the Spirit, as Paul tells us there in verse 2, he brings with him a new law, the law of the Spirit. The law of Moses uh, worked within our life until we put our faith in Christ, and the law of Moses hands us over to another law. No Christian is ever lawless. The, whole, the law of Moses simply transfers us to this new thing called uh, the law of the Spirit. As Christians, when we become Christians, we don't become lawless. We say, well, I don't have to keep the law of Moses, so I'll just live in the old way that I want. I'm lawless. I'm free from all of this as a Christian. No, it's nothing of the sort. The Holy Spirit, when He comes into our lives, He introduces a new law into our lives that is even higher and more demanding than the law of Moses. And Jesus brings it out in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about not only not committing adultery, but not even looking at a woman uh, to lust after her. 
not, not only not murdering a person, but not even holding hate within our hearts. No, no. When we become a Christian, the, the, the level isn't lowered in terms of holiness for us as Christians to some lower level than the law of Moses. The, the, the law of the Spirit takes us to a place we never dreamed of in terms of, of holiness and, and Christ-likeness. And so, uh, this new law that comes into our life is called the law of the Spirit. And the law of the Spirit is more demanding, wonderfully so, because unlike the law of Moses, which mainly focused upon our outward actions and very little upon our heart or our thinking or our emotions, the law of the Spirit, when that, uh, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, He not only addresses our outward actions, but He also deals with the parts of me that are inward. He deals with my heart. He deals with my attitudes. He deals with my thoughts. He doesn't just want my outward actions and my outward life to look like Christ. He wants me to think like Christ. He wants me to feel like Christ. Uh, he wants me to love uh, like, like Christ. And, and so this he brings in, and he wants to operate. He wants to accomplish a holiness that is inside and out related to our lives in conforming us to Christ. And the Holy Spirit never considers it a bad thing, and no Christian should, and even the world shouldn't, consider it a bad thing, uh, you, you know, to have all of these areas of our life be governed by the law of the Spirit to have the law of the Spirit come into our lives and make us like Christ in all of these areas, because it is only to the degree that we are like Christ, not only in our outward actions, but in our thinking and in our feeling, that we are also freed as people and able to live the life that God has called us uh, to, to live. The law of the Spirit, it speaks of the active living work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, by means of conviction or by means of, of affirmation. Uh, in terms of conviction, here's how uh, some ways that it, it can work within our lives. Here we are, we're engaged in a conversation with someone. Before we become a Christian, we're engaged in these conversations all of the time. We have no sense of wrongdoing. We have no leading to do anything else in it. And here are two, here's a conversation where people are gossiping and they're slandering or they're telling some kind of a, a dirty joke or whatever. And in the old days, we would have just jumped in and thrown our two cents into it altogether. But we become born again now, and the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. And now all of a sudden, we hear the same conversation that we've engaged in a hundred times, and now there is this voice within us, this sense within us that not only are we not to engage with this conversation, there's something wrong here, not only not to engage in it, but we need to disengage ourselves from that conversation. And we listen to that law of the Spirit, the Spirit speaking to us about how we're to conduct ourselves in the uniqueness of that situation, and we obey the law of the Spirit. Or I uh, begin the day and something happens and I'm all uptight and I get in the car and I'm going to drive to work or whatever it is and I'm all uptight and tense while I'm driving and becoming very, very aggressive on the roads and uh, I think I'm a member of the Blue Angels making my way through the four lanes of the, of the highway and, and uh, uh, even becoming unsafe, very, very far from Jesus' teaching, blessed of the meek, uh, not even remotely near it. And then the Holy Spirit begins to convict me 
that in my impatience and in my hurriedness and tells me to back off from this and stop driving so selfishly. Take other people into consideration here. You're in the the wrong here, and you you need to back off, uh, you know, from uh, from that and uh, trust God to get you there on time. And the Holy Spirit, the law of the Spirit speaks to us in this way. Sometimes it can, it can uh, center on anger. So here I'm engaged in a person with someone uh, about something, and maybe it's an argument with a spouse or with the kids or, or with a friend over some uh, political um, issue. And I find myself losing uh, control. And now my face is flush and veins are coming out from places I didn't even know that I had veins and didn't want to know I had that many veins in my forehead. And uh, my voice is raising, and then the Holy Spirit begins to speak to us that we've, we're lost control here. You need to back out of this conversation. Uh, you are, and, and let, let go of this, this thing that you're discussing. You're hurting your witness as, as a Christian reminds us that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so we heed the voice, and, and we back away. Or sometimes you can just go into a store to buy something. And uh, as you're there, you, you, you've gone to the store with the intent of finding that item right on the shelf. And uh, finally, you come to the aisle, and there it is, and you reach up, and you grab it, and you've got it right there in your hand. And, uh, and before you can even take it off of the shelf, the Holy Spirit stops you. And you lose your peace now to buy this item, uh, the very thing that you had come in, intending to do. And not only do you lose your peace about buying it, you come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit that, that, that now to buy it would be absolute disobedience. I feel like it would be wrong to buy it. And maybe the Holy Spirit knows that we don't need it or it's just a waste of money or that we've got a personality that every time we get a little bit down in life, instead of going to the Lord in prayer, we go buy ourselves something uh, new, and we're indebted by virtue of this cycle within our lives. And so God says, I'm going to break that cycle, and the law of the Spirit, we go to take and buy it, and the law of the Spirit says, no, uh, I prohibit you to do that, and, uh, and uh, you are not uh, to purchase it. And in doing so, he reveals his will or his law concerning that passage in order to lead us out of that kind of, of life. And that's how the law of the Spirit uh, it, it works within our lives. And, and among other things, it's like having a free life coach. He's not just a life coach. Don't go out and say, hey, he thinks he's just talking about, you know, the Holy Spirit is a life coach. He's a lot more than that. But life coaches are really in right now, aren't they? Everybody's got a life coach because they need perspective and, and they're kind of, what, you know, how do I make these decisions and how do I see this situation within my life and, and so forth. So it's kind of a, 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 a big deal right now. I, I was so curious about it and I was wondering about my qualifications for it as a part-time, you know, kind of side work to see what they made a year. They make 43000 a year. I googled it some months ago. They're probably making more now. But you think about having, having just that aspect of the Holy Spirit within our lives. People paying money, big money, uh, in order to have uh, someone speak into their life that isn't even remotely qualified to do so on the level of the Holy Spirit, to, to speak and bring perspective that no other human can, being can provide to us, to give us a wisdom that is never, ever wrong. And the Holy Spirit is there to do that within our lives as a form, uh, among other things, of the, of the law uh, of the Spirit. 
And, and so, you know, as church leaders, and I exhort myself, for example, you don't have to make 40 laws about what the congregation can or can't watch on television. That's not our job to produce a new law related to uh, these, you know, new devices that are part of the, the modern age. All we need to do is just instruct people to ask the Holy Spirit whether He wants you to watch that show or whether He wants you on that website or whether He wants you playing that video game or whatever it might be. Take te- just take television on its own. There were no televisions at the time of Paul. Uh, imagine if we tried to come up with a law today that uh, would be exhaustive in terms of instruction for Christians in terms of laws related to sanctification, a, a, a sanctifying use of television. You would end up with, you'd need a binder for the law that would, would come out of that in order to cover don't do this and do this and then, this and then this and this and this and this. And we'd end up with a law that would, it would be like a a small paperback to add as an addendum to the Bible just related to the issue of television, not on the issue of, of video games or on, uh, on the, you know, the World Wide Web or anything else on top of it. We would be absolutely buried under laws if we were going to deal with all of these issues or try to deal with them as, and find a replacement for the law of the Spirit in a Christian's life. The Holy Spirit is able uh, to accomplish sanctification within our lives by virtue of the law of, uh, of uh, the, uh, by, by virtue of, uh, of His law of, of the Spirit. And very often this law that, that of the Spirit within our lives, it takes the form of affirmation. It's not just correction. Uh, but when we do what's right, the Holy Spirit uh, informs us of it. So here you are in a conversation, and somebody says something that's offensive, and you bite your tongue. And uh, you don't say, you know, tit for tat on the thing, and you don't repay evil for evil on it or whatever. Or somebody comes, and this is a needy person. This is a troubled person. And uh, you sit and you talk with them for a half hour, and they talk for the 29 minutes, uh, and uh, 45 seconds. You've got 15 seconds in, but they just needed somebody to talk to. That's all they needed was somebody to, to listen to. And you leave that house, you leave that situation, and you get in the car, and what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit will say, you did good. Then, you feel that feeling you got right now? Of how good, you're heading to that car and you didn't, you know, lower the boom on them and you just, you just were an ear on the, for the part of God and uh, in that situation, you, you see how that, how that feels? That's what Christ would have done in that situation and you're feeling what, what happens out of that. And so the, whole, the law of the Spirit has an affirming side of things related to our lives well, commends us when, when, when we get things right. You see, it isn't a written law, as wonderful as that might be. It's a living law with a living teacher living right inside of us. And the thing about the Lord's convictions or His affirmations, the law of the Spirit working within our lives, that law will always operate uh, and be consistent with God's revealed will in His Word and, uh, and it, with, with the Bible. 
So you've got the law of Moses here that Paul's talking about, 613 commands. How long would it take you to count to 613, let alone to remember 613 commands? Who could keep track of 613 commandments? Who could keep track of 15 or 20 or keep track of, uh, uh, of 10? Well, we can't keep track of all of that, but the Holy Spirit can keep track of it, and He does. All we need to do is just keep track of the one voice in our lives, the voice of the Holy Spirit, listen to Him, obey His promptings, and under His direction, we will enter into a life of holiness and godliness that no law or legalism or human effort can ever hope to produce. And so the law of the Spirit comes into our lives, and He knows how to produce a quality of life that could never, ever be produced by legalism, because not only is the law, of, uh, the law of the Spirit more specific concerning uh, His instruction to us than any written law could ever be, but the law of the Spirit, in that law, the Holy Spirit provides us with the two things that law can never provide, the law of Moses, and that is a desire to keep that law that comes from the Holy Spirit, and then a power to keep that law uh, of, of the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 7, this guy has, he's got all the desire in the world. He wants to keep the law. He wants to be right with God. He wants to be holy. What he lacks is the how. He lacks the power. And the law of the Spirit brings a law, a wonderful standard of holiness in our lives, and then gives us what is needed to achieve it by giving us a desire to keep it and then the power to keep it. And those things are unique to the law of the Spirit. It's not that, and it's not that when we're born again and the Holy Spirit enters into our lives as Christians that now sin ceases to continue to have a, a downward pull upon us. It's now that when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, we now have a far greater power and pull in our lives toward holiness. It's kind of like uh, getting on a jet airplane and uh, getting airborne. When that plane gets airborne, and you always like it when it's airborne before the end of the runway, right? When that plane gets airborne, it, it does not get airborne because the law of gravity has ceased uh, to exist or cease to exert its downward pull. The reason that the plane becomes airborne is because other laws, greater laws governing aerodynamics, the law of thrust, the law of lift, they've now come into play that allows the plane to supersede now the law of gravity. Again, the law of gravity is still in full force. All you have to do to be made aware uh, uh, of that is to mid-flight go to the door and uh, step out, and you'll discover that while you're in this plane, there are other laws that are superseding it, but the, the law of gravity is still fully in, in play, but we remain airborne because a greater power is now at work through the plane. And so it is concerning sin and the Holy Spirit. Sin will always have a downward pull in our lives as Christians until we enter into the glory of heaven. 
but the power of the law of the Holy Spirit supersedes that downward uh, pull, and it allows us to live a life above sin, freed from the pull of sin. But if I decide in the course of my, my Christian life, I decide to walk away from the influence of the Holy Spirit in my life, I'm going to grieve the Holy Spirit, I'm going to quench the Holy Spirit, go back to my sinful ways, I will discover that they still have the same pull upon me as they always did. The Holy Spirit doesn't force us to live a holy life. He just gives us the desire to choose holiness. He gives us the power to do it, and that, and, and, uh, that is greater than the pull of sin that's always going to be in our lives until we get one day into the glory of heaven. Now, I always think about all of this in, in, in this way. In, in my Christian life, in, in my study of the Scriptures, I've kind of tried to simplify it in my life in terms of illustrating it, that the Holy Spirit is the how. He is the how behind the what of God's Word. He is the how behind uh, the what of God's Word. So we have the what of God's Word, and that's precious to us, but we can't keep it without the how. Let me me illustrate it to you this way, a true story um, that happened in my life a a few years ago. A friend of mine came, uh, he lived in another city, and he came to visit me here in Modesto. And he said, I need to talk with you, and and so we got some breakfast uh, together. And he expressed the fact that he was having difficulty finding a church in the community that he was uh, living in. And I knew the community very well, and I, and I knew there were many churches there. And I told him, well, surely you're going to walk into one, and it's, you, know, you walk in, then you, one of them's going to be right for you. This, you know, I thought maybe he's just having a, you know, a critical attitude uh, on things. And then he, he told me that, he, as I said, well, what's your frustration here? And he told me that he could best illustrate his frustration by telling me a true story that had happened in the church that he had just visited uh, the two days prior on, on, uh, on the Sunday. And what he ran into that church on that Sunday morning, he says, is typical of, of what I'm running into continually. He'd gone to the Sunday morning worship service, and uh, during the sermon, the pastor used a, a counseling appointment from earlier in the week as an illustration in the sermon. Bad idea, always a bad idea. Uh, people can guess, especially in a smaller congregation. But the pastor then proceeded to tell the congregation that he had counseled a young woman who was in her mid-twenties, so narrow, 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 narrow down, you know, in a congregation of a hundred. So a young woman in her mid-twenties who had come in for, for counseling. And, uh, and the woman had told the pastor that she'd become pregnant while she was a teenager, and her mother had very heavily pressured her to have an abortion, which she did. And as a result of, uh, of the abortion, she was left sterile for the rest of her life, no ability to have children. And now many years later, she becomes a Christian. And she's not only struggling greatly with the guilt of her own sin, but she's also dealing with the great anger and bitterness that she felt toward her mother over all of this. Now, my friend is very, very amazed that the pastor is going to expose so uh, intense and so uh, uh, recent a, a counseling session in the course of a sermon. But put yourself in that same room. We'd all be in the same place. We'd be wondering, this guy's opened a great can of worms here. What in the world did he speak to the 
uh, to the woman uh, in, in this situation. I mean, in terms of curiosity, you could hardly do uh, better in terms of, uh, of, of producing it within an audience. And so he wondered, what, what's the counsel going to be to this young woman? He'd have to wait very long for, for his curiosity to be satisfied. The pastor proceeded to tell the congregation with, with great, uh, great strength and, uh, uh, and, and conviction that he had told that woman that she just had to forgive her mother because uh, that is what the Bible says. And my friend said, I almost flew out of the seat, and the idea, out of my seat, and the idea was to go up and, and uh, choke the pastor uh, to death. And so the pastor gave her no explanation of the wisdom behind forgiveness, no explanation of the how of the Holy Spirit behind forgiveness and, God, and obeying God's command to forgive others, no mention of God providing her with that power and that ability to forgive, no mention of calling on her to forgive her mother in the light of how much God had forgiven her in, in, uh, in her life and in her sin, no mention of forgiving her mother in order to be Christ-like in the situation. How can we represent a forgiving God and, and fail to be forgiving in our own relationships? No mention of, of any of this. And I, and I told my friend, I said, you, you know, you, you have to be mistaken. He didn't say that. Uh, you, he must have said it, and, and, and you missed it. And uh, surely the pastor explained to the young woman uh, not only her, her responsibility to forgive, but, but also the why and the how behind God's commandments. And my friend, uh, he assured me, now this is, I'm being exactly uh, straight with you on this, and he, and he said, this is what I'm running into continually in, in trying to find a church. Now, what was my friend's uh, uh, great frustration? Was the pastor wrong in what he said? No, what he said was absolutely correct as far as it went. The problem is, is it didn't go far enough. And without mentioning the how of the Holy Spirit behind the what of God's Word, he not only left that young woman, but he left that entire congregation with the idea that we are to live this Christian life in our own strength, that God has revealed His will in the Bible, and now it's up to us to roll up our sleeves now and obey it in our own strength. But as we saw last time, that is to sentence Christians to the absolute misery and wretchedness of a Romans chapter 7 Christianity. And you remember the frustrated cry of the man as Paul uh, declares there in uh, trying to live in Romans chapter 7, the Christian life in the strength of, of the flesh. And what was the great source of his frustration? Look at it in verse 18. He said, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. But for to, for to will is present with me, but how? And circle that word how. This is his problem. He's, it's, I don't need instruction on what's right and wrong. That's not what God has got me in Romans chapter 7. I understand the law is good. I understand definitions of holiness. What is killing me is that I'm being constantly confronted with law, and nobody is telling me how to obey it. 
And, and that was the frustration, and that was my friend's frustration. Behind the what of God's Word, behind every encouragement of the Bible, every command of the Bible, is the how of the Holy Spirit. And without knowing this, the Bible becomes a complete frustration. It's, you can get bitter against God related to it. Here you set this impossible standard before me, not only in pages, but in books and in chapters, and then you give me absolutely no power to be able to keep it. It seems as if the entire Bible is written somehow in order to mock me, tell me what the standard is, and then mock me when I fall so short of it. And it is to completely misunderstand Christianity and the realization of the law of the Spirit that has come into our lives, bringing the how of the Spirit to now accomplish the what of God's Word. Christianity cannot be successfully lived by attempting to imitate Jesus in our own strength. It can, it can only be lived based upon the law of the Spirit, based upon the impartation of the Holy Spirit into our lives. If you have a thing, and sometimes we're told in the course of our Christian walk, you come into a situation and, uh, and you don't know what to do in that situation, ask yourself, what would Jesus do in that situation and do it? Ha! To know what Jesus would do in that situation, not to have the power to do it, I'm not going to be able to accomplish that. That's to do me into Romans chapter 7. But Christianity is not the imitation of Jesus and the strength of my flesh. It is the impartation of God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit into my life who will now live the life of Christ in me and through me. I, 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 let me illustrate it this way, and I close with this illustration. Suppose I went to, to San Francisco for the day, and as I go to the Golden Gate Bridge, and I wanted to see it in all of its beauty in a spring day, and there you have a master painter that has set up his easel and all of his paint supplies and all, and he is doing this beautiful painting of the Golden Gate Bridge and the entire surrounding areas, and he's capturing wonderfully all of the beauty of, uh, of the bay. And as I stand there and I watch him paint, and uh, with all of his skill and all of the beauty, I think to myself, you know, I'd like to paint a painting like that too. And so I asked the artist, where'd you get your canvas? Where'd you get your paint supplies and, and your easel and the brushes and so forth? And he tells me the store that he uh, uh, went to get them from. I raced to the store to purchase them. And then within an hour, I've set my easel up next to his and I begin to paint the same scene. And I paint the same scene by imitating his every action, every brush of the stroke, every time he changes colors, every time he mixes uh, colors, I match his every move, every stroke, every, uh, every color, every brush stroke. And then at the end of the day, a crowd gathers around the, the tremendous beauty that he's captured on his canvas and all of the ooing and the aahing uh, that, that, that comes uh, with it. And while my best effort, my attempted imitation that stands right next to it, all it produces is, is uh, snickers and pity uh, in people's hearts to, to such a pathetic uh, attempted imitation. And then as I sit down 
completely frustrated and condemned all of that hard work. I imitated, I tried, I did exactly what, what, what he did. And I wonder to myself, what in the world would it take for me to be able to paint like that man paints? And then suddenly it dawns on me, the only way I will ever produce a masterpiece like that man produced is if he came into my life and painted through me. And that is Christianity. It is the Spirit of God coming inside of me to now live the life of Christ through me. That and that alone is Christianity. And my life moves from fighting and striving to do this all in my own strength to becoming one now of just quietly learning to hear His voice and then to, and then to a life of quiet surrender and simple obedience to when He does lead me. Again in verse 4, that the law, of the, that the law might be fulfilled not by us but in us and that in us is by the Holy Spirit. In the law of Moses, it handed us off to a new law, the law of the Spirit, far more demanding law, far more wonderful law, far more comprehensive law. And, uh, but with that law of the Spirit within our lives, the Spirit gives us both the will to do and the power to do of God's good pleasure. Now, I have to do a horrible thing to you right now. And that isn't to, to make another point, uh, but to close the sermon with this, to say, I have to ask you to pause again. And, and I, you have no idea how it kills me. I'm a very thorough person uh, to stop in, in this place. But this is what you have to do with Paul when his, his entire thought takes up three chapters. I can't apologize for him. I can't make up for what he's done to us here. You can't teach the entire thing in, in one sermon. And so I am stopping at such a vital point midstream on this issue uh, that is going to bring, that I, I bring closure to over the next three weeks and significant closure to next week, but I don't have time to do that today as we move on to speak about the baptism with the Holy Spirit and then even, even beyond that. But sufficient for us to, today to whatever degree is required in terms of our understanding of what Christianity is, and I think it is greatly misunderstood, not only by the world, but by most Christians, actually, in this regard, in terms of the law of the Spirit. I would venture to guess that if you were to ask the average Christian, say, are you born again? Yes, absolutely. What's the law of the Spirit? Couldn't answer related to it. If I can't answer that question, then it certainly means that I'm not living it, and we're living something so inferior so often. And how wonderful to have these things that we've looked at today that speak to the Holy Spirit within our lives and allow those things to settle down within our hearts, especially for, for those of us for, for whom it, it might be altogether new to you today. And it's just reconstructing how you understand Christianity and the Christian life to move you from chapter 7 and into chapter 8. And those are good meditations for the next week as the hunger kind of builds then for uh, the capstone related to all of this. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, thank you for uh, sitting through a sermon and uh, doing it respectfully, and uh, I, I hope it's been helpful uh, to you. But for you, I want you to know that there's a law at work in the universe that is greater than the law of sin, and it is the law of the Spirit. 
and for you to know that the law of sin is not the only game in town. There is the law of the Holy Spirit that comes into your life when you put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and the Holy Spirit comes into your life and then takes you into a quality of life in Christian life that you never dreamed possible. Maybe you grew up in church, and, uh, and here's the book. The book's put in front of you week in and week out as a series of commands that you just go ahead and obey in your own strength. Or maybe you weren't raised in church at all, but you picked up a Bible once or twice, and you read through it, and you looked at it, and you said, I could never do that. Why would I bother? Who needs the aggravation? Nobody can live that life. And thinking that's what Christianity is. And then today realize that it's not that at all. It is God coming into your life today and then giving you both the desire to and the power to live the life that is described in the Scriptures, and it is the greatest life that a person can, can live. There's a new sheriff in town. It's the law of the Spirit. It's not just the law of sin that's at work. And if you want to be freed from your sin, the guilt of sin, the power of sin, one day from the very presence of sin, there'll be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with the Lord today. For all of us here today, if you need prayer for anything, uh, any need within your life, they'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Hmm. Father, I marvel, we marvel at what Christianity really is. And we marvel at the secret that it so often remains, even as we would spend years in the Bible or years in a church. And thank you for speaking to us through your Word and showing us what this really is and introducing us to this law of the Spirit. You know how it kills me to stop in absolute midstream. Uh, with an unfinished part of such a critical, critical teaching and, and subject, Lord. And so I pray that you would use this coming week in my life and in the life of all of these wonderful men and women that stand before you now to just take these things that have set the stage for what comes next and to allow them to settle deeply into our life and into our understanding of Christianity and into our relationship with you. Lord, we pray for each person that doesn't know you right now, that stands before you, and we pray that you break through all of their misconceptions of Christianity or no conceptions at all, and by your Holy Spirit that you would draw them into your family and into your kingdom today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.